Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. All right. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's first Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett. I'm the host of this show, and our guest today is Anthony Atala. But before we get to that, before we get to Anthony, our podcast series, Hope Lies in Dreams, launches in one week, September 8th. And uh, I will put the first chapter in this feed. It'll show up as a bonus, and you can listen to it here. But uh, we have finished the, the trailer and I'm going to play that trailer now. This is a podcast about anti-sense, the history of anti-sense. It's a podcast about Stan Crook. It's a, it's a podcast about the company he founded. It's a, it's a podcast about the disease spinal muscular atrophy. Terrible disease. And I think this, is, this story has been undertold. So I'm going to play the trailer for you now. Hold on. Stan Crook told me something once that I've never forgotten. This was back in 2015 when I was interviewing him in a Hilton Hotel in San Francisco near Union Square. He was in San Francisco to attend a biotech conference as CEO of a company he founded in 1989. Stan grew up destitute in downtown Indianapolis in the 40s and 50s, an ugly place, as he called it. And as we talked, I asked him how he managed to overcome that neighborhood and his hard upbringing and get himself to college and then beyond. So mostly desperation and, and anger. Um, and just the whole idea of having no hope, no aspirations. I mean, poverty is not the loss of money. Of course, it's that. It's it's the loss of dreams. It's the absence of hope. That's 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 poverty. The absence of a real future. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, it's it's not so. Uh, at least from from my perspective, it's it's the inability to even dream. You know. This is the story of Stan Crook's life. It's the story of the biotech company he founded, and it's the story of a powerful drug discovery technology called Antisense. Together, they cracked the degenerative disease known as spinal muscular atrophy, which had been stealing the lives of children and traumatizing families since it was first discovered more than a century ago. From Nature Biotechnology, I'm Brady Huggett, and this is Hope, Lies, and Dreams couldn't believe and couldn't explain and couldn't understand how this drug could have failed. Just like one of the m more amazing, dramatic moments, certainly, of my life. So I'm, I'm like, I have to sit here and watch my daughter slowly waste away. Yeah. Like, that's what, that's what I'm going to do. The winner is Biogen and Ionis for Spinraza. When you get a shared vision like that with a bunch of people and you have to say goodbye to half of them, it, it's, it's traumatic. And that's what I always thought about was hope. Um, and to me, it's, especially the infant form, um, is a terrible disease. But if I'm telling the truth, that's the truth. Ten chapters. First one starts in a week. They'll come out one a week after that. You can find it anywhere you find your podcast. Just look for Hope, Lies, and Dreams in Nature Biotechnology. You'll find it. I hope that you will listen. We worked really hard on it. Now, back to First Rounders. Anthony Atala, Director of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine and also a co-founder and Chief Medical Officer at Precise Bio. He's just a real pioneer in Regen Med. But full disclosure, I went to Wake Forest for my undergrad. And we talked about the school in this podcast. It, I mean, he knows that about me. I know that about him. And it was difficult not to talk about this thing that we have in common. But we also talked about Florida, where he grew up, and how much that has changed since he moved there when he was a boy. Uh, his family moved from Peru. And we talked about how he was convinced to include research as part of his uh, professional interest. He was just going to be a clinical physician. That's all he wanted to be. And someone said, no, you might be good at research. And obviously that changed the direction of his career. We talked about how he was uh, convinced to leave Boston and, and take his lab and his career down to Winston-Salem, you know, this, this sort of small city, 
in North Carolina and what that has meant to him. And uh, plenty more. He's just a really nice person and uh, was a joy to talk to. So let's get into it. Here's your first Rounders podcast with Anthony Atala. Listen up. Oh, my pleasure to do this. Now, I heard you have a weight connection. I do. Yeah, I went there for undergrad. Did you? That's great. When I was there, I don't, the Institute for Regenerative Medicine wasn't even there. And exactly. the exactly. school has changed so much that, um, yeah, I mean, I want to talk about all that, about what the school is doing and how it's sort of tied in with the economy now of downtown and everything else. It's fascinating. I'm familiar with your with your work. Of course, you've published in our pages and, uh, you know, your, your work is translational. I think you've got something like 250 patents, both US and international combined. And, and we track that. And so I've, I've come across your work before, but I realize I don't really know your, your path through, through medicine and science. All I know is that you were born in Peru. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I was actually. Yeah, it's interesting. How, how did that happen? What, what's, what's your family's background? Oh, yeah. You know, basically, um, I was. I was born in Peru, and I moved, we moved here when, we were very, when I was very young. Then I just did all my schooling here, you know, from grade school on, basically. Yeah. What was the, was the, the reason for, you know, one of your parents' jobs or something like that? Yeah, it was job-related. It was job-related, and then, uh, you know, our whole family moved. It was really great, you know. I mean, actually, you know, obviously it, uh, you know, changed my life. really did, yeah. you know. Well, the move was to uh, Coral Gables. Yeah, it was to Florida. That's right. Yeah. Is That's that kind right. of, um, I imagine it's sort of like almost like a bedroom community of Miami. Is that right? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I grew up in Coral Gables and also a little bit in the, uh, in the Boca Raton area. Oh, you you guys moved. Yeah, I was in Boca Raton, for, you know, in the Boca Raton area, Miami, uh, Coral Gables area, uh, the Miami area. It was nice. You know, it was a nice time to be there. You know. Yeah. It was. You know, it was there was nothing there. You know, I tell you, uh, everything closed down at nine o'clock. You know. Right. Nothing, yeah. You know, it's kind of it's it's amazing what's happened there. So do you do you go back there much now? Like, how, what are the changes? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, that whole area, both. Both uh, Miami and Boca Raton are basically unrecognizable to me. I mean, That's what I would have thought. Yeah, it's just the growth in Florida. I was just thinking of that this morning because I was reading somewhere, you know, they talked about Florida having 1,600 miles of beautiful beaches. And I said, I guess that's what did it. That's where Florida went. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like that and the theme parks, it just made it. Yeah, a destination for families. Usually, at some point of their children's lives, they would bring their kids down to Florida. Amazing, right? The, I, I think when Orlando, when uh, Disney World opened up in Orlando, you know, they kept it a big secret, of course, for all those years buying that land. They did. I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, you know, because they had Walt Disney in California, right? And then they actually ended up buying all this land, which was really, you know, it's interesting because in, in in California it was desert land, right? In Orlando, was swampland. Right. So, so that was, they got it sort of cheap and developed it. And developed it, yeah. Amazing. And they didn't tell anybody they were doing it. No, they didn't tell anyone they were buying all that land. But then they announced they were opening up the park there. And I, I assume that that is what drew, you know, um, Bush Gardens. Uh, exactly. All of them are there. Universal Studios. Universal Studios, right. Yeah, yeah. And that's all because Disney opened up their second their second home there. Yeah, their second home. Yeah, much bigger than Walt Disney, you know. Yep, yep. Disney and then so, and then of course Miami's become, you know, kind of this really internationally known city now. Yeah, it's crazy. Are we diving into the podcast now? Yeah. Right? Yep. No, we're, we're starting it, or are we're we... starting it. Okay, yeah. that's good. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm usually curious about how people got into their careers, and I'm wondering if your parents move the move to the United States was for a science career, or I don't. What did your What did your family do? Oh no! You know, it was basically, um, you know, they were in they were in business. They were in the business. And there's no science or medicine in my family at all whatsoever. Huh. At whatsoever. And in fact, when I said when I when I was a young child and I said I want to be a doctor, my dad said, "You know what? Doctors just work too hard." And I just said, "Okay, well then I guess I won't be a doctor." <laughs> he, he said. He said, you know, they work hard. Well, you know, this is what he said. He said, they work hard and they're away a lot from their families. True. True enough. Yeah. You no, know, he said they work very hard and they're away a lot from their families. And, um, and 
you know, you're just married to your job. And I said, okay, well, I guess I won't do that then. And I, I kind of just diverted to do other, to doing other things. Well, then I was gonna, then I was gonna do business. Actually, I said, okay, I'll just do business. You know, like the rest of my family. Yeah. And uh, like my dad. And then uh, when I got to college, I said, you know, I, I really do want to do. This is really what I want to do. I really do want to go back to what I wanted to do as a child, which was medicine. medicine. Yeah. And then well, I had no intention whatsoever of doing research, none, zero. You were going to see patients. That was your goal. Patients. That was my goal. I was just going to be a clinician. And my goal was to, uh, you know, see patients in private practice and uh, practice by the beach. Oh, know? really? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. So this, what, what was the family business? What was the business that your dad was in? Oh, they were doing um, all kinds of different things. You know, they were doing... Uh, uh, they were involved in like creating uh, manufacturing in the uh -huh. manufacturing business. And, and they were, it's interesting because, you know, from my perspective, you know, business was fun. You know, I mean, you talked about it at dinner table and it was what I grew up with. Right. I mean, this is, you know, um, but then when I, but then I realized, gosh, you know, in, when you're in business, your main goal is just to go ahead and, and, uh, just make money. <laughs> That's yeah. your goal. Yeah. Right? That's what you're in business for, create products and make money. And I, and I just said to myself, you know, it's got to be, I, I just rather do something else, you know, rather do something else with, with my life. As you said, you want to be a doctor. That's because you wanted to help patients. Right, exactly. I wanted to help patients. Yeah. And, and uh, it's interesting because, you know, there is something special about being a physician and taking care of patients. There's something very special about that. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. You know, that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, and I was basically inspired by a family doctor that would come over the house and see us, you know. And he, oh, like house calls. Yeah, house calls. And he'd sit around the house and he'd talk to everybody and see everybody. And say, this is really cool. I mean, you know, this, this person can listen to everybody's problems and just really help everybody out. I really love that concept, you know. Yeah. So you could you sort of see that he had a um, like a, a level of respect in the community, right? But also you liked the way that he was able to figure out what was going on by the things they said. It was not so much uh, any level of respect in the community because this was actually you know I had no idea of that, right? It was really I was very young, but I did know that he would make house calls and and uh, and I had no idea of so you know the social standing. Uh, mm -hmm. so, standing or anything but because we were in a um you know not necessarily a small city and uh but the fact was that he he had this knack for just sitting down and you know taking care you know taking care of my you know taking care of me when i was sick and making me better you know and taking care of my family members at the same time everybody was oh yeah it was like a social event you know when Here, the doctor it, came yeah it was yeah. a social event everybody gather around the living room and talk to him and everybody would tell him what's going on with their health and he would basically say do this do that oh he'd, he'd do the whole family at once sort oh, of had, like a checkup oh wow yeah. wow i mean he would do one of you know but he would i mean a, one at a time but he would yeah interact with every member of the family while he was there yeah he would interact with every member of the family while he was there and uh so it was fun you know i, I enjoyed seeing that and i enjoyed saying wow that's really cool i really would love to do that you know, and, and, but I had no intention whatsoever of doing research, none. So w when you went to college, you went to the University of Miami, sort of right next door. I did. And when you went into college, did you, th were you, were you already decided back on medicine or you were thinking about something else? No, that's when I decided I'm going to go back to doing medicine. And you majored in psychology. Well, I had, that's interesting. I actually had I, I love sciences. So I ended up taking both a lot of uh, biology courses and a lot of chemistry courses, uh, I needed to graduate finally. You know, I had all these credit hours and I needed to graduate. Yeah. And it turned out that I could, I just needed like, I was one class away from making any of this my majors, you know, my, and somebody said, well, you know, you have enough courses in psychology to, oh, to okay. just go ahead. And I said, okay, I'll pick psychology. So I had, I had a lot of courses in chemistry and biology and, and apparently psychology too, because I guess I liked it. Not by choice, just the courses I took. So that was almost like a default major because you had the most credits in it. 
Yeah, it was a default major. Wow. And uh, and that's what I did. So you're in college and you're majoring in all these sciences and leaning toward medical school, I would assume, at that point. And you did, yes. when you told your dad, did he say, why are you, why are you making this awful decision to burden yourself with a, a hard-working career? No, at that point, he was fine. He was fine with it, you know? And you know how you're very impressionable when you're young. Right. You know? And so a statement from your dad, you don't, you know, you just take it, you know, to heart. Right. Whereas when you're older, you can discuss it and say, well, this is what I want to do. He was happy about, about yeah. it at the point. Yeah, yeah. So then I think for, for medical school, you went to the University of Louisville, right? That's right. Right. So at this point, you're thinking, I'm definitely going to be a doctor. Uh, were you, did you have a specialization in mind? Well, you know, tell you what, I, I knew that I definitely did not want to do any surgical specialty. I was. I wanted to do a non-medical specialty, and like anything else, it's like everything else in my life. Nothing that I ever planned turned out to be the way I thought it would, because I walked into the operating room. I actually picked surgery as my very last rotation of my, um, of my, uh, you know, of my of my actual clinical rotation. So it was my very last rotation because I was convinced I was not going to do surgery. And then I walked into the operating room, and it was love at first sight. Said, really? Yeah. I said, oh, my gosh, this is just amazing. Truly amazing. So first off, why were you not into surgery? You just didn't want – you wanted maybe that one-on-one interaction? I don't, I don't know. You know, because I – it was going back to my family doctor. You know, I wanted to right. you know, take care of these patients and figure it out and figure out what was going on and use your stethoscope and, you know, listen to someone's heart and you can tell what murmur they have just by right. using stethoscope and that kind right. of stuff. And, you know, uh, I thought, you know, surgery was more like cut them up and fix them kind of thing, you know. Right. Not much thought process behind it, so I thought. I was just talking about this. My last guest, uh, the, the idea of um, the sur- someone, someone else diagnoses the problem and the surgeon fixes it. You were at first being like, I'm going to be the one that diagnoses the problem. But exactly. once you got in that surgery room, you're like, I'm going to be the one that fixes it. And, you know, interestingly, that's why I chose the field I did. You know, because, in, in, you know, I'm a urologist by, you know, that's by training, yeah, by training. But actually, that specialty is just perfect for me because I in that specialty, you really do the diagnosis and you also do the surgery. And uh, and it's true. Many surgical specialties is just someone else makes a diagnosis. In urology, you're pretty much the one making the diagnosis huh. almost all the time. And uh, so so it was just uh, and I just fell in love with surgery. You know, it's a, it's a great field. You go in there and, you know, um, and there's something nice about being able to go in somewhere and just fix the problem right there and then, you know. Can, just, you, can you remember when you went in the room, what it was that, you know, sort of triggered something in your brain and you thought, this is what I want? It was absolutely great, right? Getting up to that table and seeing the surgeon. I hear I'm a medical student and, my, uh, and walking up to that operating room table and seeing that surgeon just, you know, have an amazing uh, uh, fund of knowledge and being able to anatomically go right to where you need to go. I mean, you mm-hmm. make this decision, right? And then you go exactly where you need to go and you know all the anatomy and you know where all the things are and you know what you need to do to actually fix the problem. I was just, you know, mind boggling to me again. It was just fascinating and uh, very, very inspiring that by the time we left that room, that patient was totally closed back up, you know, stitches in place, everything was fine, and the problem had been solved. Huh. That's interesting. So you like that idea of like, okay, when this person came into this room, there was a problem. They've left it now, and we fixed it. Exactly. And there's something nice about that, you know. And so, and in my, in my practice now, of course, we, you know, I see both kind of patients. I see the patients where I do surgery and it's fixed and it's done. But then I also see those patients that I follow for years and years, oh. you know, patients that I treated them when they were newborns. Really? And yeah. And I'm still oh, seeing wow. them, you know, I'm still seeing them 20 years later. Wow. You know, cause they do have these conditions that you have to keep managing. So you did your residency at, at in Louisville too, right? Yes, I did. And from there, I think you, you got a fellowship to um, Boston Children's Hospital. That's right. Can you t- take me along that path? That was great. Louisville was great. I just loved the University of Louisville and the School of Medicine there. Uh, you know, and then got to uh, Boston. And, of course, that was for my 
you know, final stages of my training. And that's where my boss actually called me up and they were adding a, a clinical, they, they were adding a research track to the clinical training. They were adding a research track. And he called me up and this is Dr. Alan Reddick. He was, a, you know, the head of the program and he was a surgeon in chief of Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And he called me up and he said, you know, uh, we are adding a research track this year. So we're going to give you first choice to do just the clinical track or, or, or the clinical track plus the research track. <clears throat> and I immediately said, you know, Dr. Reddick, I thank you for your offer, but I'm, I'm definitely just going to clinical track. Yeah. That's all I want to do. And he said, really? And I said, yeah, really? I said, huh, interesting, because I think, you know, I think you would do well with adding the research track. I think it'd be good for your career. It'd be good for you. And why don't you think about it? And why don't, you, why don't we connect in about a week or so? Because we need to make a decision of who's going to do what. Because because they added that research track, they were adding one extra candidate to, uh-huh. to, the, to, the, to their match. So I did. I did think about it. Talked to my friends, my mentors, my professors, my wife, and a week, and I really did think about it very seriously. So he called me back and he said, okay, have you made up your mind? Are you going to do just the clinical track or the clinical track plus the research? And I said, well, Dr. Reddick, I really appreciate it, but I'm still only going to do the clinical track. I've really thought about it. I only going to do the clinical track. And he said, really? When you're thinking about it and you're talking to your mentors and your friends, what are they telling you? That yeah, research is probably not for you, or you know you want to you, you want to be in a clinical side, so maybe just stay in that path. Yeah, because you know that's typically you know it, it, interestingly that's typically the medical path, right? You're going, everybody, pretty much everyone's there because they want to go and practice medicine, right. and so everybody said, well, you know, unless you're really going to do that as a career choice, I mean, why would you want to do that? And I said, okay, you're right. I guess I shouldn't do it. And, uh, you know, so when he did call and, and I, I said, I really did think about it. I mean, I really did. And I said, well, I'm, I'm still not going to do it. You know, at which point he said, well, okay, is your wife home? <laughs> it's a true story. He tells his story all the time. And I said, yeah, she's home. And so can I say hello? He said, sure. So he got on the phone with my wife, talked to her and uh, got off the phone, gets off the phone, looks at me and says, okay, you really got to do that. That research track. He he asked for your wife. She talked to him and hung up, and he never talked to him again. She ended the conversation. Well, yeah, she actually said no, no. She actually did hand me the phone back. And says, well, you know, it's nice. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, why don't you guys talk about it some more, and we'll connect. So you know, we get off the phone, and and we get off the phone, and she says, well, you really ought to do that research track. You really ought to do that research track. Why? What was he saying? Right. What did he tell her? Well, that was my question. I said, why? That was exactly my, why? And she's like, because, you know, he knows what's best for you. You know, obviously he's been around. He's, you know, he, he directs the program. He probably knows what's best for you in your career. And that's what he was saying. He thought that would be, what, you know, he thought that would be best. But I, I mean, in retrospect, he was correct, right? I mean, absolutely, he was correct. But how did he know that? Well, you know, I, so I had actually written papers during my, you know, residency. And so I did publish, I, I had published papers, but they were clinically related papers. Right, right. Not basic research papers, but I did make an effort to really, I did love the academic track at that point. And I had already started in that mindset, you know. Um, my initial mindset, as you know, was I'm going to do private practice by the beach somewhere. But right, right. By the time that residency uh, started moving forward, I, I really, really loved the thought process of trying to, you know, solve problems. You know, how do you actually get, you know, why why are patients doing this? You know, can, can we accumulate this data and try to figure out why this is actually happening? And so I had already published a number of papers. So he actually said, you know, um, I think you're, you'll be better for an academic, you know, this will be better for you for an academic career for you to have this experience. And that really totally changed my life. It really did. You know, it really totally changed my life. The questions that you would be looking at as an academic research are n- new problems, right? Yeah. New, un- undiscovered things yet. How do we, let's get this data and figure out if there's a new problem that we can tackle. That, that must have been kind of exhilarating to think about. 
you know, it's amazing. Research is, I tell you, it's unbelievable, right? To actually just ask the question, just to ask the question is amazing, right? And then you say, well, has anybody else asked this question? And then, well, has anyone solved this? Has yeah. anyone solved this question? And so it was just really something that really just spoke to me. You know, research just really grabbed me. Once I, I couldn't believe it, really. I couldn't believe that I actually loved it so much. And uh, it was just one more area that I really never thought I would like that I ended up liking. And you know, it's just so my belief is that in life is, you know, try all these different things because you will never know what will, you know, what you will actually. So if a door opens up, just go through it. Right. You don't have to stay in there, but at least go in there and look at it. Go in there and look at it, you know, because you'll yeah. never know what your passion will be unless you really are exposed to it. That really changed the way I, I you know, I train folks. You know, I really want to make sure they get exposed to a lot of different things. So you, your wife basically convinced you. A after that phone call, she's like, he's, he's telling me, and I agree with him now that you should do this. And you said, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, um, uh, you know I said, okay, it's fine. Well, how long, how long were you there? So at Boston Children's, I was there for 14 years. Oh, 14. Okay. Yeah, because okay. after finishing my training, I stayed there as a faculty member. I actually, you know, started my lap at that point and, yep. and uh, just stayed there as a faculty member uh, before coming to North Carolina. So this, uh, this dream, this former dream of yours, which is having a small clinical practice someplace by the beach, those are both out the window. You're in Boston, which, I mean, they do have beaches, but it's not quite what you had in mind. And you're... You know, you're doing most of your effort is in research at that point. You so are seeing I, patients. Yeah, I was still seeing. Yeah, I, I still see patients today. So it's still yeah. a part of what I what I do. I never give. You know, one of the interesting things is people. It's very hard to do both. You know, it's very hard to do both research and clinical. But I always felt that it was so important for me to remain uh, and keep doing the clinical because that's really I love doing the clinical work. I really do. And you need the clinical work to really inspire you for the next question. You, and, you know, that's what keeps you – and I can go to my colleagues in the operating room and I can ask them what's going on and I can find out what's going on in other areas and, uh, and I can see where the, where, the, where the clinical problems are. You know, to be, to be a translational researcher, you, you have to stay up to date with a clinical problem. So I enjoy doing it. I enjoy – I love taking care of my patients. I love being in the operating room. But I also love the fact that that helps my research. Right. It's not only your own seeing patients, but you ask around. What are you seeing with your patients? So you always are sort of keeping up to date on what's happening. Absolutely. So important because, you know, in Regen Med, you're covering all these different tissues and organs, right? I right. Mean, something you do in one area applies to other areas. And if you don't know what's coming down the pike, you may be working on yesterday's technology. Right. It's, it's so important to, to know that. So important so where the fields are moving. To know where so, so tell me, in this 14 years, where your research moved to? Uh, I'm assuming when you got there, of course, you didn't even really know what you're going to do for research, but then you must have picked up areas that you thought, I'm really good at this or this interests me. And over that 14-year period, somehow you become you know, kind of a, a leader in regenerative medicine. So, you know, what happened was that I, you know, when I got to Boston, um, it was an empty lab, actually. Um, it was an empty lab and the scientists, cause it was a new, new, uh, remember they were starting the research. Yeah. You were, you were ground zero. And, uh, the lab was a new lab. It was uh, pretty much an empty lab and the scientists they had hired to run the lab had not yet arrived. He was not arriving for another, you know, six weeks or so. Hmm. And, uh, and he did send a, a technician down there to start buying stuff and setting up the lab, Paul Guthrie, and, and the scientist was Michael Freeman. And Michael arrived six weeks later. And so I, I certainly did not want to sit around for six weeks. So that's when I decided I would, you know, work on this project that had to do with, um, you know, growing tissue and, you know, mm. by, by talking to different people, uh, you know, and, and knowing what was going on around me. And so by the time that the scientist arrived, Michael Freeman, um, he said, well, can you, you know, do you want to work on my project? And I said, well, actually, I already started this other project. Can you help me out with this project? And he just laughed and he said, yeah, well, what are you working on? And he, he did. He mentored me through this. Through he was six project. weeks too late. I mean, the project was underway at that point. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it's only a one-year research tr- experience, so uh, so I did not want to waste six weeks out of that. Right. Yeah. Year, that one year, of course, I kept doing the research through afterwards, but but you know, it's one of those things where I didn't want to waste six weeks, and and so by the time he got there, he says, "Sure, I'll help you out," and um, and the project was really to try to grow uh, bladder tissue at that point. That was the project. Yeah. And uh, that I that I. Uh, you know, decided to work on. And, uh, and it's interesting because uh, it just really made a whole, uh, it made such a difference, right, for me to have this project and, and to say, can you help me do this? And for me to be able to go in this totally impossible project of growing bladder tissue, because if I had known then what I know now, you know, I was so naive, right? I mean, I had not been in a research lab. I would have never said that. I would have never said, well, I want to grow bladder tissue. You mean how difficult it would be? Yeah, how difficult yeah. it would be. Yeah. It very, very difficult. And so I was very naive, you know, thinking this is going to be a one-year project, um, you know. But, you know, it, it was one of those things that uh, uh, I'm glad I asked that question. You know, I, I, I never regretted asking the question and, and trying to get it answered. Yeah, that's, that sort of set your whole career in a new direction it did it really did because then uh basically eight years later almost nine years later we ended up implanting the the first organ you know uh the first bladder tissue into inside a patient so that really it, it was one of those things that um by asking that first question and just going through all those challenges i mean we couldn't even get the cells to grow at that point uh, or the- right. So let's talk about that. You're using the patient's own cells. You yes. were, right? Right. So that's first step is, okay, get these cells and grow them. That's the first hurdle. Yes. And you had to get the scaffolding right, which I assume is a big hurdle as well. Big hurdle. And then when that's done, can we surgically implant this, the scaffold disintegrate, and then have this bladder function in the human? I mean, these are all massive challenges. No wonder it took so long. They were massive challenges. They were massive challenges. And so and, you know, just to get cells to grow, as you know, 30 years ago, most human cell types could not be grown or expanded outside the body. Yeah. And so so for me, the expansion stage was critical because I realized that if I, we didn't have, if we could not expand the cell, normal human primary cells outside the body, we could never get to that goal. It would just be a research experiment. So, yeah, we could reconstitute cells by just taking them out and putting them in a scaffold and seeing what would happen. But... You know, and people didn't even believe that, right? People did right. not believe that tissue could reconstitute itself. Um, so, in fact, my very first abstract was totally rejected. You know, when I was say when we finally were able to show that cells would grow and, and reconstitute themselves in a scaffold and start forming tissue, the abstract was fully rejected. And uh, by everyone, yeah, I will by the major meeting that we that we went to, and I, I couldn't believe it. And I saw the the program chair at another meeting and I was totally shocked. I said, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, you know, we worked so hard to get this to work. And so I went up to him and I says, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but I submitted this abstract and it didn't get accepted. And he said, which abstract? I said, well, this abstract that we, you know, we're able to get these cells and put them on a scaffold and the cells reconstituted. And I said, I, I said, oh yeah, I remember that abstract. He says, well, I just want to know why did the abstract get rejected? Oh, oh, cause that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be done. And I said, what do you mean it can't be done? We just did it. Yeah. It says, no, no, it can't be done. And that, I, that's, a, I, I, that's fascinating because I've heard this from other people. When you're doing something that's absolutely on the cutting edge like that, the first thing is you have to get people to believe you. Oh, it's crazy. That you've just done it. It was crazy. You have no idea. It's, it's amazing, right? So many people that say, you know, well, it's not true. I mean, you know, they just don't believe it. It yeah. can't be done. It can't be done. So. You're just standing there saying, what do you mean it can't be done? You know, we just show that it can be. What, what, maybe I want to bring it to the lab and show you every step on how it right. gets done. Yeah. Well, did you did you eventually, did he reconsider eventually or, or you must have? No, no. of course, that meeting, had, you know, he already planned the meeting, et cetera. But then I. Well, it, I meant like the next year oh, or yeah. something. Oh, yeah. Know. Next year. Yeah. 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 The next year. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's just a funny experience, right? It was. It's just a really interesting experience if you do something in the in the research arena and somebody just says, Oh, the, the, no, you know, it's like, what? we're not making this up. You know, it's not like we're just putting together a piece of paper and, 
and making this stuff up. Can I can I ask? Um, I assume that you focus on the bladder first as far as regenerating tissue because the as a sort of organ, the bladder is somewhat simple, right? It's got to contain urine and, and and release urine, but it isn't like the lung, for instance, or I don't know, the pancreas or something like that. Am I correct? It's interesting, right? So it is more complex than other. It's not a great first tissue to start with because in reality, flat structures like skin are the least complex right? architecturally. Tubular structures like blood vessels or, you know, those are the second level of complexity, architecturally more complex. But hollow non-tubular organs like the bladder are really the third level of complexity with solid organs being the most complex. And then interestingly, again, if we had known that, we would have never started with a level three organ. But the interesting thing is that by starting with a level three organ, it really made it simpler for us to tackle flat and tubular structures. It definitely uh-huh. was simple. But you know, there is no, but you're absolutely correct in saying that it's not as complex as a solid organ because that is the, like the lung, you, you said right. it right. I mean, there's nothing, I mean, the, compl- the complexity between flat tubular and hollow organs, you know, it's a, it's a gradual increase in complexity. The complexity in the lung. of three to a solid organ is just monumental. Yeah. Monumental yeah. Yeah. difference. So you're right. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. So that was a big breakthrough for you, and probably for your career as well. You know, you're working on the you're working on this stuff. You're really. I mean, I'm just doing research work. That's really all it is, right? Yeah. Um, but that paper, when that paper came out, it just got a lot of it. It, it had a lot of attention. I'd never expected that, really. Oh, you didn't? No, none at all. Zero. Oh. Zero. I mean, Zero. you didn't. You know, it's sort of this this first implanted bladder uh, that you knew you must have known that would have been a big deal. Well, but this was in the in the preclinical model when I submitted it to Nature Biotech. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so at that point, I was just you know it's a preclinical model. It was a large animal model, you know. So it, you know we were able to show that it worked. And uh, but I had no idea, right? I mean, the paper got you know got into the journal into Nature Biotechnology, made the cover, mm-hmm. and it really did get attention and I, and yeah. I just was totally surprised by it, totally shocked I said gosh I, I had no idea you know because you know you're just doing your work again you know remember I was uh, on a clinician track I really didn't have any expectations out of the research track I was just trying to answer this question so when that paper came out and it was on the cover did that change I don't know like maybe not your perception but other people's perception of you you know, for me, it was just, okay, we, we have to keep going. You know, we're working on all these other tissues. It was not, you know, the interesting thing is because of, I mean, just think, you know, when I think about it, all these other tissues we wanted to tackle, right? So there was so much to do. In my yeah. mind, it's okay, we got, you know, this one down a little Let's keep bit, going. Right? Let's keep going. There's so many other ones we can go after using the same strategy. It was like, you know, it was overwhelming in reality. And, and I really didn't, I didn't stop to think about perceptions or anything. I, I just, you know, uh, one thing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fairly, I, I guess isolated in that manner because I just do my work and I really don't think about what, you know, I just, I just put my head down and do my own work. That's been yeah. much what I've done my whole career. How did you, um, how did you get to Wake Forest? You know, so I had been in Boston for uh, an, a number of years. 14 years or something. Yeah, 14 yeah. years. And uh, interestingly, we had published uh, another paper in Nature Biotechnology that was the one about the kidney, the kidney paper, uh, a kidney that where we actually were able to, it was during the cloning time, you know, mm-hmm. it was during the cloning era. And uh, it's interesting, right, because we started working on Remember, remember the term regenment had not even been created when we right. published the bladder paper, and uh, certainly stem cells had not yet been discovered when we started this work. And cloning, you know, when cloning came about, you know, uh, we started this work. Cloning had not yet been out there for, uh, you know, when Dolly was cloned. But right. when Dolly was cloned, I remember calling Ian Wilmot. You know who cloned Dolly, right? He right. was one of the major, one of the authors that cloned Dolly. Yep. And uh, I knew he was going to be in Boston for a conference, and so I called him up and I said, you know, I'd like to connect with you. You're going to be here. I'd like to see you because I'd like to talk to you about organ regeneration and cloning. You know, so he can't see. He was at a meeting in Boston. We got together. We had dinner together. 
And Ian, of course, told me all about cloning and how he, would, he had done it, et cetera. And one of the main things was, could we actually, we were working on kidney at the time. Uh, and we, we decided that we would uh, try to create a, a kidney tissue th through cloning. That's mm -hmm. what we decided to do. And Bob Lanza was a big collaborator of ours um, in Boston. And so this paper got published in also in Nature Biotechnology. And uh, this, uh, so one of the uh, people here at Wake Forest called me up. And uh, they said, you know, I just saw that paper. You know, we'd love to see if you can visit Wake Forest. And, uh, you know, we'd love to see if you can, uh, if, if you're willing to uh, come here for, uh, for a job. And I said, well, I'm actually not interested. I have no interest in leaving Boston. Yeah. So he basically said, well, we'll have you come for a visit. And I said, well... I'll come down for a visit as long as you know that it's just really a visit, you know, just don't uh, give me the hard sell. I'm just coming down. To, yeah, I'm just yeah. Giving, yeah, coming down for a lecture and that's it. You know, I'll, I'll be happy to come down for a lecture and spend a day with you. Um, but I have no interest in leaving Boston, none whatsoever. So he invited me. I gave my talk. I was here. And, uh, you know, next thing I know, I'm meeting with, uh, you know, I'm having, you know, cocktails at the president's house and, I'm, you it's know, the hard sell. and I'm having, uh, you know, a meeting with the uh, presidency of the medical center and, uh, you know, and, and so they're, you know, and they basically started approaching me, you know, and I said, really, I really don't have any interest in leaving Boston. But the CEO at the time of the medical center was Richard Dean, Dick Dean, and he was creating a research park down here in Winston-Salem. Uh, and he had acquired all this land and he had he basically had not been made public yet but he was acquiring all this land rj reynolds had donated land right to the medical center and they were acquiring additional land to start a research park here in winston-salem this is exactly what i want to talk about because I, I think this is fascinating and i think it ties into all these trends that are going on with bioentrepreneurship actually across the country and even kind of internationally but so wake wake forest is this college that had been originally formed in Wake Forest, North Carolina, right? More towards the eastern part of the state. And R.J. Reynolds was this tobacco, is this tobacco, giant tobacco company in Winston-Salem. And they wanted a university in their town. So they brought Wake Forest, they convinced Wake Forest College to, be, to come to Winston-Salem, become Wake Forest University, which they did. And the town itself, I mean, Winston's a small town, really. It's about 250,000 people. And tobacco isn't quite what it was. And there has been this sort of tying in between the university, which is sort of on the northwest, you know, northwest of downtown itself, and the downtown area of Winston with the, with the medical school, with the, I think that's probably why they started the Regenerative Institute, right? The Regenerative yes. Medicine Institute, to yes. sort of help grow almost a new um, economic base for the, for the town, tied into the school, tied into medicine, and they needed talent for it. And that must be where you came in. Yes, you know, it's, it's interesting. He, the CEO, uh, you know, said, well, we're building, we, we are building this research park, you know, and. In we, these old tobacco buildings that have been donated by R.J. Reynolds. Yeah, exactly. And he said, you know, we want you to be an anchor tenant for the research park. And I said, well, you know, I, I really don't have, I really, I'm in Boston. I'm here to stay. I'm not going anywhere. So the interesting thing is that he. The, the firm they hired to plan the park was in Boston, the planning mm -hmm. firm, that they were planning the research park. And so he called me up one day and said, you know, uh, I just want to call you because uh, the dean of the, of the School of Medicine and, and I, we're both going, we're going, both going to fly up to Boston to meet with the architectural firm, firm and we'd like to come and say hi and just say hello and uh, visit you. And visited your, you know, and I said, sure. And they said, yeah, you know, we'd love to get together for, uh, for dinner. I said, sure, let's do it. They said, well, can we come and visit your lab as well? And I said, sure. And uh, they said, and, you know, once you, you know, uh, you know, uh, when it's time for the dinner, you know, we'll invite your wife to come, you know, with us. And I said, okay, sure. So Did you have uh, kids at this point? 
at this point, uh, yes, I did have kids at this so point. So they were in school. Very that young. was something to think about. They were very they're young. Very oh, young. young. Okay. okay. Very young. I think we had our, in fact, I don't think, uh, yeah, very young. And so uh, they came to visit and they visited the lab and then we went out to dinner and I'm just, you know, hosting them for a visit. I mean, it's just a social visit. You know, they're telling me about all this stuff. And so I excused myself in the restaurant to go freshen up and and they turned to my wife and they said, you know, we're, we're here to recruit your husband. And my wife said, well, I don't know about him, but if he doesn't want to come, I'm, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> to North Carolina. This is two times they've turned to your wife to get you to do things, whoever it is, whether it's come to Boston or come to North Carolina. Two times, two times. Turns out my wife really loved North, loves North Carolina. You know, she used yeah. to vacation here when she was a child. Oh. And the, in the beaches of, North, of uh, the Carolinas. Yeah, North Carolina. Um, she's from Ohio, and she used to come to the Carolinas, and so she loved the Carolinas. And so we started a dialogue, and I said, you know, I, I'm really not movable, you know. But then, really, it's amazing, right? Again, the offer just—it uh, it was. The more I looked at it, the more I started to see that this was truly an amazing opportunity to really create an inflection point in terms of what we were doing in Regen Med. Yeah. Because, you know, in, in Boston, we had our, you know, laboratory for teaching engineering and regenerative medicine, but, you know, to create an institute was going to be another jump and uh, to have a, an investment of, uh, you know, an, uh, a financial investment to make that happen. But more important, though, was the fact that the state was very much focused in biotechnology. I started learning more and more about it. And it turns out that, you know, we're for, first of all, Wake Forest is a great school. Yeah. You know, it's a great school. Top 25, yeah. consistently ranked by US News, uh, US News and World Report as one of the top 25 or, you know, 26 schools in the country out of, you know, 10,000 schools, yeah. right? It's always, yeah. a, it's a great school. Uh, but then you 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 start thinking, well, you know, medical center is very well recognized. You know, we are now, in fact, we are now, uh, you know, part of uh, the Atrium Healthcare System, which is in fact the fourth largest academic healthcare system in the country. And Winston Salem itself, it's a just an amazing city. So everything started adding up. But the but the most important thing is that North Carolina is very, very focused on biotechnology. Yep. And so when you look at biotechnology, of course, everyone always thinks about California, right? I mean, it's number one in the country for biotechnology and just the sheer size, right? California is such a big state that it yep. really overwhelms every, the rest of the country when it comes to biotechnology. As you know, Massachusetts is number two right. for biotechnology. But guess what? North Carolina is number three. And so, uh, and North Carolina for the last two decades has been for the last two decades in a row, going now in three decades, it is consistently the state that has the largest growth in, bio in the biotechnology industry, decade after decade after decade. So this is now in the third decade that this is actually happening. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so North Carolina really is is uh, is growing in amazing ways in biotechnology. And I remember moving here after I moved here. I remember that a friend from the Boston Globe who was a head of tech transfer at Children's Hospital, sent me the, sent me the, the uh, article from the Boston Globe from the, uh, the front page of the business section that said, what can uh, Massachusetts learn from the North Carolina biotechnology industry? Wow. And so it's true. You know, I mean, when you take in all the biotechnology in North Carolina and you take the, 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 uh, the cost of living here, and just the beautiful setting and the weather, yeah. and the traffic, yeah. you know, no traffic, all the, all the pluses of, of the Carolinas, you know, it, it's, it continues to be a growing state in terms of population and biotechnology. So, yeah. so it's just a great place to, to be really. It's a great, you know, finally I said, okay, well, this is a chance to really go to the next level. Since my wife is already headed down there, I might as well go down there. Go That's down there exactly well. right, yeah. right? She said, I'm going. I said, okay, wait a second. So I'm you to figure you out. sort of realized that it could be this, 
you you were one of many things that were happening at Boston Children's. But if you came down and were this, what what they call you a, a, a cornerstone tenant, oh anchor tenant, anchor tenant for the park, anchor, uh, yeah. yeah, for the park, then you would have the space and the facilities and the investment they're putting in to really kind of craft this in your own image. Well, you know, I tell you, I really thought that you know Dick Dean, who and 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 Doug Edgerton, and who actually now runs NC Bio, and Terry Hales, they were a team here and they really really wanted to bring this biotechnology uh night is here to to winston because you know we're just a th- stone throws away from research triangle park yeah and just uh same thing with charlotte right i mean we are right in the center we're right in the middle between charlotte which is a banking capital yeah. you, know, you know one of the major banking capitals for the country and research triangle park one of them you know the the best known research park in the world really yeah and we're right here in the center and uh i was just uh you know it was just really one of those things that when i started looking at all the elements behind it i said you know this is really this is really a good opportunity after all this is something i really 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 need to consider this regardless of what my wife says (laughs) (laughs) can i can i ask about um so the thing I want to ask about is founding of Precise Bio. Well, you're you're a co-founder there. Have you co- yeah. you founded another company? Yeah, I'm a co-founder of Precise Bio. Yeah, I founded a, a number of companies actually, but but typically, what I typically my 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 uh, philosophy has been not to get involved in companies. So I, I, I don't get involved in the companies because you know. So you spin the technology out, but then that's it. We spin the technology out, and that's it. That's really right. What okay. We, that's really what we do. Uh, precise bio is actually different because the technology was not a spin out of wake right and so um, and so I decided that it was a spin out of a tech, it was a laser technology for printing uh, but they needed expertise in regen met and so right. so the, Arya bat right is the co-founder Arya bat is a co-founder exactly they had the bioprinting. And they needed sort of expertise in cell uh, regeneration or tissue exactly. growth. Exactly. Yeah, they had a printer actually. They just yeah. had a printer, and not even a bioprinter, just a printer. But we had the bioprinting expertise and the regenerative expertise. So, so in this case, I did become a little bit more involved because we had to get involved to make. It was not a technology that we were spinning out. It was really yeah. a technology that needed that expertise, and so, so I did get involved. Tell, tell me how that went. I know that you had a, um, a Series A round that I, I think was mostly funded by Israeli investors. Yes, right, absolutely. So the company is actually partially based in Israel and partially based here in Winston. Mm-hmm. And it's been a really a Ari Abad is the CEO. And, and, uh, and what I love about it is they're doing things the right way for the right reasons. You know, uh, it's about getting products out to patients. So it's very much aligned to our mission at the Institute here at Wake Forest. I did some research on the company, but I was wondering about um, if it was difficult to get the company off the ground because it was not based in Cambridge or the Bay Area, and investors sometimes really like to play in those spots, and they didn't know really what to do with a company that was half-founded in uh, Winston-Salem and half-founded in Israel. You know, it's interesting. Uh, We've had... We've had uh, a good response to to the to the concept, and it's been fun. It was funded well. I mean, we've actually gone, but you know, it's like any startup. I've seen these startups now time and again, and it's really, you know, it takes effort to raise money. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but also, it's very important not to uh, not to overpromise. You know, it's very, very important not to overpromise. And Ari is great at that. I mean, he just tells you exactly what's going on. I mean, it's just great. You know, he said he tells it just like it is. And uh, and I love that. I love the fact that uh, you know, you have people raising money who are gonna tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly. And they're they're telling you what the risks are and what what's the upside, the, the potential upside. They're not just painting a pretty picture all the time. You know, they're yep. telling you the true story. And that's 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 what Precise Bio has done, and I think they've been successful at raising funds. But you know, it's always tough. I would say it's been tougher because of uh, uh, of being in Winston, because I think people want to invest in these technologies. In fact, it's the opposite sometimes, right? What I've seen out there, 
I'm, I'm, sometimes I just can't believe the amount of money that people are putting into these technologies without really knowing what the reality is. I mean, I, I right. get surprised at that all the time. Uh, you, you mean like these huge rounds you'll see for a startup someplace starting at $75 million or like that? Yes. They, yeah. And, and then for, you know, and it sometimes seems that the more, the larger the idea and the more impossible it is to get there, the more money you can raise sometimes. Yeah, that's that does sound accurate. Yeah. You know, and so, uh, and, you know, it's so important to make sure that when you do bring people in to invest fund money or, you know, money from funds, et cetera, that people are not going to, you know, you're going to, you're not, you're not, you're going to try to do something where you put, would put your own money. That's so important. Uh, and I think doing the races at the right amount and not being overly ambitious and doing it right. At the end of the day, I think that's a, a winning formula for, for, yeah. for doing it right. I want to ask you one other thing about this. So, when, when was the Institute for Regenerative Medicine actually started? Upon so, your hire? Yes. Yes. We started the Institute when, when we moved here. And we moved our group here from Boston, basically. Yeah. So we moved about 20 folks down from Boston to start the Institute. And that was in, um, I don't know what year that was. Oh, that was 2004. 2004. Okay. And so my question is, uh, th there's a lot of um, cities or university towns that would like to grow their economy through entrepreneurship and specifically bioentrepreneurship if they can. And, you know, knowing that the two poles of our country, we just talked about sort of uh, the Bay Area slash California and Cambridge, they, they kind of sprang up organically. And I don't know that if you can actually just go ahead and duplicate that someplace else. But what you can do, I think, is find your area of expertise and then, and then build on that. And it seems like to me that for, for Wake Forest, they started this institute, they brought down an expert, they started an institute, and became a world leader in that technology. And that is how they decided they would they begin to grow their innovation quarter, begin to grow their startup culture based around their area of strength. And I'm wondering if, if I'm reading that accurately. Well, you know, certainly there are so many different areas of strength at Wake, you know, so many good areas of research. I mean, really, some, you know, public health sciences is, you know very well known at Wake, uh, the cancer research unit, uh, neurobiology. So there's so many areas of strength, really. I think in terms of Regen Met, the, one, the, the difference between Regen Met was that it was an emerging field. Right. It was an emerging field, you know, and so we could grow with it, you know, because it was such a, the field was in, in such a state of its infancy that we could actually really grow that. Um, because pretty much, think about it, Pretty much anything we did was was fairly new. Right. It's almost like putting a first flag down. Yeah, it really was because, I mean, I, I think back to the early days after we had done our initial experiments. Said, well, what what other tissue are we going to go after? Because no, you know, no one else was going after any of these tissues, really. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, well, what other tissue we're going to go after? And it was really okay. Well, you know, it's op an open field. It really, was a totally open field. You know, it's a new, new field, new area. You know, we can try to tackle all these different problems. And so I think it was just, uh, you know, being at Wake uh, and having the support from Wake Forest. But more importantly, uh, also underscoring the importance of the city and the state, you know, in addition to Wake. In other words, everyone being aligned, that biotechnology is a thing. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a state that really loves biotechnology. And so it really made it easy for, for W firm to, to move forward. So it was not only Wake, but it was the idea that you'd get help from Wake. The state was interested. The city was interested in having something grow in this area where biotech had really not flourished yet. Yeah, you know, the, the, um, that's right. It's a new technology. RegenMed was fairly new. And, you know, the park, you know, of course, has so many different tenants. And we were just one of the tenants, right? right. We just one right. of the tenants. And, uh, but we were lucky to be here uh, early on, and uh, and we were lucky to grow with it. The uh, For Precise Bio, as you said, you're a little more tangled up in this one than you than you have been in your others. Do you think you'd like to continue to do this? So really, the main thing for us is, the main thing for us over the last decade has really been, how do you make sure that these technologies really succeed uh, in the marketplace? 
because that's the only way that patients are going to benefit from it. So if you think about it, we've been working on these technologies now for a number of decades. And mm-hmm. a lot of, we have, you know, uh, we have a lot of these technologies in patients now in, you know, clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three. And we have about, you know, 15 applications of our technologies are now in patients. So we're implanting our 16th technology this coming year. But for us, it's not just about the research aspect of it or even the clinical aspect. So, you know, we work very, very hard to make sure that these technologies work before we put them into a patient. And we work very, very, very hard to make sure these technologies succeed in the patient. But then the missing link, believe it or not, the missing link is manufacturing. Yeah. Because we are very good at innovating at the research end, but we're not very good at innovating manufacturing at the same time as the research. And what ends up happening is that all this industry end up, ends up going abroad. Right. And so if you think about it, that's what you've seen with the, with the battery business. What you saw, you know, we innovated batteries here. The whole business is abroad. Computers, right? Innovated here, invented here in terms of a lot of innovation, manufactured yep. abroad. So the question is, how can we make sure that we retain this RegenMed industry here in our backyard, in our, you know, in, in the States. And, and the way to do that is to really concentrate on manufacturing so that we can innovate in manufacturing so that we can scale up the technologies, make them lower cost, reproducible, more precision, be able to uh, make sure that these technologies are able to be produced in a large scale and large quantities. And that is where manufacturing comes in. And so a lot of what we've done over the last many years is really start this big manufacturing initiative with this test bed that we've created here in Winston-Salem, which is a test bed that where industry donated millions of dollars of equipment mm-hmm. so that uh, startups and emerging companies could use this equipment for free. And so they can create their prototypes And so they can start to innovate the manufacturing process at the time that they're developing their product. Interesting. And so by these startups having access to this uh, test bed, and these the they're they're able then to save you know millions of dollars themselves on equipment that they would have had to purchase to build their prototypes. What the companies that the companies that donated the equipment to our test bed uh, to this uh, foundation a nonprofit foundation, what they get out of it is that they get this dialogue with these startups so they can help to improve their products. And all these products are based on scalability. And so the companies, and guess what? When these startups finally uh, are done with their prototypes and they have to manufacture their product, the companies, they're going to get their their equipment from these companies that, that help them, you know, develop the technology. And and what we benefit at in terms of the field in general, we're going to benefit because we're starting a new set of standards and methodologies to help innovate in the area of manufacturing. And so retain this, the manufacturing, yeah. Retain the manufacturing here in the state. So that testbed is here uh, in Winston-Salem as well, along with a workforce development program, which is also nationally based, so that we can train the future folks that are needed in the RegenMed industry. So we don't get, get into that problem, right? That we have these companies starting up, and we don't have the, tech, the expertise, people with the expertise needed to run them. So we have a workforce development program that's actually from, uh, you know, now funded by the National Sciences Foundation. Uh-huh. We have this incubator as well. So these companies can come in and be in a RegenMed based incubator where they, all these companies can help each other out. So. When you ask about startups, it's a little bit of a different bent. We are trying to make sure that we can push the field forward at all levels. Oh, that's fascinating. The the develop the career development thing. Where how are you pulling students or talent from? What's the outreach? So believe it or not, we start at the high school level. That's for, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. so we're starting at the high school level with technical schools and high schools, and taking it all the way to technical schools. And to and to you know four four year and two year degree and four year degree colleges and universities so all the way so the whole you gap. mean North Carolina schools or schools all over well so the 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 model was built here for North Carolina so the the grant that we put into the National Sciences Foundation was to build the ecosystem here 
Yeah. But actually, that's being used as a model now to see how we can do that nationwide. Got it. Okay. And of yep. course, if we are training folks here in North Carolina, those folks can go anywhere, right? Yep. They, they can. They're they're they are part of the national workforce as well. Um. Okay. Listen, that's all I had. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Hold on. Let me let me stop this recording. Okay. There it is, your first Rounders podcast with Anthony Atala. I hope that was informative or enjoyable for you, or, or maybe both. Thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. If you'd like to comment on this show, on Nature Biotechnology, the journal, or anything that we do, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. Uh, the next thing you hear from me will be Chapter 1 of Hope, Lies, and Dreams. I will put that in this feed. And then um, after that, another first rounders. I I think I know who the guest is. I think I have that person locked up, but I won't. I'm not sure, so I won't say. That's all. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.